You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, hello. Welcome to the Get Fucking Real show. If this is your first time with us, I'm so glad you're here. And you might be here because of our amazing guest today, who I got to meet for the first time when I interviewed him, which is not something that I get to enjoy here often because I just know so many awesome people. So one of our other awesome guests referred Alok and oh my gosh, I have a new friend and you will too. After this conversation, that's how he makes you feel. His name is Alok Apatarai and he is the CEO of Uplift Millions. It's a global coaching consulting company. And basically he helps entrepreneurs build six to eight figure companies. And his focus is people, planet, and profit. So he is all about maximum impact. In fact, that's the name of his new book, Maximum Impact Potential. And he has a cool TED Talk on feeding over 500,000 emergency meals to people in need. So he is a social impact entrepreneur for sure. And he is also the proud partner to Caitlin and father to Sequoia. His son is about 10. And so he really takes us back to when his son was really little. And that's where his really GFR wormhole story gets the juiciest. So I look forward to you experiencing it with me because it was quite a story. But let me ask you a question to kind of like bring you into connecting more deeply with a loke. And the question is, are you an empath? In other words, do you feel what others are feeling? Because a loke has felt the feeling of others since he was a boy. Like he could feel their suffering, their triumphs when they're experiencing racial injustice or prejudice. And he has always known this about himself. So it has really been a foundational aspect of his evolution. And we really explore that deeply here. And if you relate to that in any way, I think you will appreciate this conversation. And if you suspect that you're an empath, I think you will relate deeply to this conversation. It is a far reaching. He is super revealing, sharing things that he doesn't often share in this kind of public setting. And I gave him so much props for his vulnerability and his courage. And you could tell he just like lives for it. And I am proud to call him a new friend. And I can't wait for you to meet him as well. So without further ado, Mr. Alok Apatarai. Alok, welcome to the GFR show. Oh my gosh, Lisa, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. And it's funny, I don't interview people that I completely do not know very often uh, because I know lots of people, but I also occasionally really trust a recommendation from one of my guests. And so Sanika is one of your clients and buds and, and actually he wasn't even the one now that I'm remembering it, it's my guest manager, Audrey. Shout out to Audrey, who you you two go way back, right? I love me some Audrey. Me too. <laughs> really like the Audrey fan clubs over here. Huge. And then we realized that you were connected with Sanika, our guest from December. So that was super fun. Super yeah, he's fun. a brother from another mother. 
I can see that totally. You have a similar, like just awesome, deep sort of male enlightened energy, enlightened-ish energy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like one of those moments where literally the moment he and I connected, I was like, oh yeah, we're going to be deep for a long time. Yeah. Oh, it's so, and it's, that's, to me, that's like the best. That's what like life's about. The deep. That's why I, I don't know if y'all know guests that are listening, but audience listening, I ask our guests a block of two hours when they come on my show, which nobody, nobody does because I just love to have time to really connect. It's like an excuse to, you know, make a new friend. So we're already having a fun time. And then we just like flip the recording on and here we go. So I'm happy to have you here. And I loved reading what I was able to ascertain, you know, through my deep dive into the internet. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it's beautiful when you meet somebody who has kind of like cataloged their life and been like, okay, yeah, this experience gave me that. And then I had this experience and it gave me that. And then, you know, there's this experience. So where I would love to start is when you're in your childhood. Now, I don't, I didn't tell you this when you told me you grew up in West Philly. I didn't tell you, I grew up in Jersey. Uh, Ah, you know, I could hear. (laughs) Did you? Did you? A little bit. (laughs) Yeah. It depends who I'm talking to. Like there's something, maybe you brought it out in me. I don't know. It might be. (laughs) So I went to school at what was called Trenton State College at the time, which was right across the bridge in New Jersey. It's now called the College of New Jersey. They're all snooty now. So Philly was like the city when I was going to college. So I love Philly. I have cousins in Philly. So so bring us back to growing up in Philly. And let's get real. We're going to get fucking real. We're going to get fucking real. West Philly. West Philly, uh, right. Let's be real. Yeah. You know. Not not where the bell is and Rocky ran up the stairs. (laughs) Not Yeah. Not there. (laughs) I was running, but for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah, I grew up grew up in West Philadelphia, 45th in Baltimore, and my uh, my mother was a Caucasian woman from rural upstate New York, and my dad was from the huge city of Bombay, all the way in India, and you know navigated pretty complex streets of West Philly, and you know really laid the foundation for so much of what I've ended up doing ever since. Wow! Wow! So so. Did you know you were what they call inter like racial? Did you know that that was your identity when you were young, or were you just like so in it? It was like normal for you. When you're there's there's sort of racial identity, and then there's also economic identity, right? And right. so I grew up in an academic household. My parents taught at the University of Pennsylvania, right? But they didn't get paid a lot. Okay, professors more, you know. Yeah. They weren't hitting the, the, the lottery necessarily in, the, in that industry. And um, I went to school. My parents sent me to school in downtown Philadelphia. And, okay. um, and so I had this very split life, right, where the school I went to was called St. Peter's, amazing private school. Uh, they scraped the money together. Um, it's actually a fascinating story of how, because there was a backdoor neighbor in West Philly. And he named Earl. And I've been just thinking about Earl this week. So it's funny you bring this up because most people actually don't talk about my West Philly days. And Earl worked for the post office. He was an honest, integrity-filled man, and he would be nonstop harassed by the neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. Never forget, Earl said to my mother, you send that boy to private school downtown because you see, otherwise he's going to turn out like this. And you know, was, Earl ended up putting barbed wire in his house and living in so much fear, but he dropped that gem on my mom. And so they scraped together money, sent me to school downtown, uh, which was, you know, wonderful. It was an amazing school. And I was very aware of difference from a pretty young age. And in my case, it was all sorts of confusion because in when I'd go to India, there I was the American. Right. right? I was the outsider there because I wasn't really Indian, you know? And likewise, in the U.S., I really wasn't totally American, but, you know, people of color would kind of call me, you know, white presenting. And you kind of get into all this stuff around both gender and race and finance, right? Uh, Home economics. And so I was I was quite aware of that from a young age. Yes. You know, it reminds me of conversation I had with Vivian Glick 
also from actually September episode. You know, Vivian Glick and her husband, Mike Koenig. You might know Mike Koenig. I, I know their names. I, I don't yeah. know them intimately. So Vivian has a nonprofit that she, it's an amazing nonprofit that helps children. But she grew, similar story in that she was in New York. Her parents were Holocaust survivors, immigrated to New York, and she lived in a bad neighborhood, but she went to a private school in a rich neighborhood. And she talked just about like this. You do feel like you're living this double life um, and you're standing out in the school because the kids know that you're not one of them necessarily. It's a, I mean, the, it, ana- the analogy I used to say, Lisa, was yeah. like, I was like, it's easier to be this, the color of the palm of my hand during the day. Oh, and to be this, the pot, the color of the back of my hand when I get off the bus back in West Philly. Wow, that's so vivid. I remember I would literally be like, wow. Yeah, it was it was a real education. And it's really shaped a lot of kind of, you know, what I've ended up doing with the rest of my life, because you see the intersection of whether it's alcoholism, drugs, violence, economic inequality, financial stress and households, arguments, fighting, right? Like something in my early days sort of recognized like, wow, like, huh, financial strain creates a lot of challenges. And that's all I knew as a young kid, like in the, I, I didn't have more sophisticated way of talking about it. Yes. And it probably sounded, the arguments, a lot of them probably sounded like they were about money. You know, even if they were yeah, it's like things. money, and you just knew it was either direct or you just knew there was stress. And whether it's our household, but even just in general, like I looked at all my friends' houses, you know, yeah, um, there was strain, right? There was yes. stress in there. Yes. Where did gender play into your journey? You mentioned that specifically. Yeah. So the flip side, right? I, I had so many opposites in my growing up. Uh, it, my my father taught me everything that I know about cooking in the kitchen. Okay. Right. He cooked five nights a week. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing wow. Indian food. Right. Uh, my mother was, was not known for her culinary excellence. Uh, my late mother and my mother conversely taught me everything I know about cars, car maintenance and architecture, design, demolition, renovation, building, hammers, okay. nails, saws. So in general, my household was a little flip-flopped. And likewise, I was raised by really an extended world of lots of powerful, strong women. So I got to see sort of a lot of those moving parts in my childhood in West Philly. Nice. Yeah. So it, it well, you know, like a small example from my childhood is that my dad did the food shopping, right? And right. like, so to me, that was totally normal, you yeah. know, but then other people would even like, your dad went to the supermarket, your dad does the food shopping, like, and so, yeah, you grow up sort of like that's normal. And then you realize, oh, wait, they're, the gender roles are not typical in my household. And my mom was a tomboy growing up. And so there was a lot that was, you don't call it tomboy now, but that was what it looked like, you know, back in Brooklyn. So, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. So how did that influence your journey in terms of like what career you were going into, where you went to college, that type of thing? For me... Between having my father from India, growing up in West Philadelphia, having a lot of my mother's family come from rural upstate New York, I have been acutely aware of a lot of these big, really tectonic points of difference, conflict, challenge that are in our history. And so for me, you know, when I looked at just my realities that were around me, I was like, huh, something's a little off. Right, like, huh? This doesn't all play out well for everybody right now, <laughs> right? Certainly, India will put that right in your face. And I've been going there since I was eight years old. And so, basically, once I was eighteen, nineteen, I was in college. I went to Wesleyan in in Connecticut, and you know, my entire major was built on race, class, gender, and exploring mm-hmm. these issues, colonialism, right? Like all these kind of core things. I really came up with a simple mission. 18, 19 years old, I was like, huh, look, do good, make other people's lives better. That was it. Like, some people knew they wanted to be a doctor. Some people might have known they wanted to be an athlete or a musician or an artist. Like, all I knew was do good, make other people's lives better. And let that guide you. 
Uh, and so from there, that literally guided me. I graduated college. I traveled around the world for a while, went to India, parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, et cetera. And then I taught. I was a teacher for five years and then launched in my social impact entrepreneurship career. So all of it came out of those early days. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So you identify as an empath. I do. And that's often not an easy thing to navigate when you're a young person. So (laughs) that's an understatement of the century. So how did you cope with all that you were feeling from the world as a young person? Probably not well. I mean, if we're going to get real, right, it's like, I've been doing in this past year, I've done quite a bit of plant ceremony, kind of really looking in and looking at trauma and healing and energy. And I've, you know, a lot of internal work. I've done a lot of different modalities, talk therapy, somatic, right? And not even that mine was like super traumatic, but I mean, yo, enough, right? And I think for me, I've always been considered a much more sensitive man, right? And even that is not like, highly celebrated, at least 70s, 80s when I grew up, right? Like, I was going to say, even that's not great. <laughs> no, no, you're already, right? Like, yeah. you know, why, is, why, why, why do you feel so much? Yes. Um, for me, like I live to feel my vagus nerve lighting up, right? In my body, right? That the chills, like what people call the chills. Like someone asked me one day, well, what's a core desired feeling you want to feel in life, right? And I couldn't answer. I said, I, I want to feel chills. <laughs> I, I watch movies for that. I listen to music for that, right? It's that tapping into that kind of core sort of hero's journey that so many of us are on. And when we decide to live a certain way, it just becomes a way of life. And for me, it was just do good and make other people's lives better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The empath part, I think, is the part where honestly, it was like just tough to navigate. You don't even realize it. When I was in Costa Rica doing plant ceremony, one of the classes was actually around how as an empath, we navigated where life began to feel scary. Yes. Right? Where life began to feel scary. And I I think this is such an important conversation. Life, at least for me, life-changing conversation has been looking at that sort of root split when we're really young, where then all of a sudden we're like, whoa, Life's a little scary. Uh, there are some elements here that are a little scary. Boom, right? And how do we start protecting ourselves? Right. So as an empath, you're kind of soaking it all in. I mean, I saw alcoholism and extended family members, you know, violence, neighborhood violence. I was like, whoa, you know, and unfortunately, as an empath, you you soak that in. Yes. But what was illuminated to me recently, this is back in July, uh, Lisa, was around how we take that in. I have always thought of it as as a quality, and I actually now see it as a coping mechanism, right? Because we're soaking it all in to navigate what we perceive could be a little bit of a scary world. And so setting boundaries has actually been something that I've had to do a lot of work around, right? Like actually what parts of being an empath are healthy for me, for my central nervous system, right? For my parasympathetic nervous system. And which of those parts of being an empath are like, oh, okay, sorry, no thank you, thank you, no thank you. That has been, I think, one of the hardest journeys of my whole life. Yes, and will continue for your whole life as your world gets bigger and bigger with the impact that you're intending to make. Yeah. So when you were seeing alcoholism in your extended family and violence, it sounds like you managed to say, that's not the way I'm going to go. Like that you, you didn't go down that route. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being really transparent with your audience, like for me, I ended up having a journey with alcohol, marijuana, you know, because you, you see enough of that stuff, then you're like, whoa, I want to numb myself out, which I didn't even understand, right? With that's the world of self-medicating. And then it was, I stopped drinking seven years ago. Oh my God, what a massive, for me, change again, not judging anybody else's choices, 
there really isn't a handbook on how to handle a lot of the human experience. I mean, I think, yes, we'd like to think that that's sort of being demystified through personal growth and all that. But for a lot of us, at least at least my age, you know, I'm in my 40s. We've had to, we've had to sort of invent the wheel to some degree on some of these things. They weren't normalized conversations to talk about emotional well-being. Right. So, you know, then you extend that out and say, well, why is it better? Well, you know, I work with all these entrepreneurs and it's like, what are we really doing? A lot of what we're doing is rewiring the central nervous system, right? Like improving communication, right? Like these kind of root human parts of the experience that, you know, woo, kind of an adventure. It is huge fucking adventure. Huge fucking adventure. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know that you don't know me that well, so you don't know my backstory, which is in 1999 is when I entered the entrepreneur scene. And my first business was ConsciousMarketing.com before anybody was conscious, right. including me. That's I right. Know, <laughs> you know, right? like I didn't, all I knew was like, I was in corporate marketing and that's not the way to go. And, right. you know, and I know that we need to somehow from the inside out, we need to like, so that we attract right. what we want, which I didn't know a lot, none right. of it, but I, there was something going on for me and, you know, and my, you know, like drug of choice growing up was food. And so yeah. when you not start navigating life without the thing, that was the thing that your young, you know, person self, you know, was able to grasp onto for lack of anything else, you know, when you strip that away and you're an entrepreneur <laughs> in charge of your destiny. And I tell my, my daughter all the time, I'm like, I think I say this at least three times a week. Most adults I know can't do what you're doing or don't have the insight you have or, you know, the the emotionality or the willingness to say no or say your truth or, you know, like there's a million things so much so that like she doesn't have FOMO. I like, I don't even understand how a young person just like, yeah, I don't want a guy. I feel like staying home. What? I don't even, right. They're so blessed obviously to have us as parents and be in a different world today where there's a different vocabulary for emotional resiliency, you know, EQ and, and, you know, all of the, my daughter's done Myers-Briggs and five other things now by the age of 16 and, you know, all of that stuff. So it is, it's mind blowing to really put a microscope on the Petri dish that is us as a conscious entrepreneur, you know, wanting to do good. I mean, for you as eight to 18 to say, I want to do good. Like that's what immediately had me ask you about your journey as an empath, because it could have gone another way, right? It totally could have gone another way. Well, and especially with sales as a skill set, I started going door to door with my late uncle Jim selling water purifiers in rural upstate New York. Like he taught me, you sell things that make other people's lives better. And seeing that and being in sales for so long, sales can also be used for not good outcomes, right? So I always say to people, you know, be driven by your heart, be led by really what I truly believe is our innate desire to see other people's lives get better. I truly believe that that's part of our hardwiring. Like we experience joy by seeing someone else's life improve in some way, shape or small, medium, large, extra large. Um, yes. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. For me, the biggest challenge is making sure that my life is like my life's a priority and then the other people's lives and then repeat. <laughs> you know what? I love that, right? It's especially for a lot of the women that are in my orbit. They're taught to put themselves last. Many, many of them. You know, it's like it's like an unspoken thing. I'm like, no, no. you want to make more impact in the world? Put yourself first. They're like, what? I'm like, the world actually needs you as numero uno. See what happens then. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so 18, you're like, I want to, you know, make the world a better place. And you focus your first part of your career in sales. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'd been on the investment banking track in college. And when I was 18, 19, I had a spiritual experience in North India driving to that rear view seat, looking backwards and hair raising drive, going to the Taj Mahal. And my 80 year old self sat next to me. That's and, crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> I wasn't like particularly woo. Okay. <laughs> and for the people out there. You were there like one woo, saying, not two woo, not woo yeah, woo. Yeah. Like, like I was like one bar, you know, on <laughs> yeah, your cell phone. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. 
<laughs> I was open, but let's just say, well, is that like I was sitting there having that type of experience all the time? And and for the listeners out there that would kind of ask me, like, like, were they in 3D? It's like, it's a feeling, you know? Yeah. But it's literally like I literally in that moment knew that my elder self, right, 80, 90, somewhere up there, basically looked at me and was like, what did you do with your life? Did it matter? And who'd you spend your time with? Mm. And like in that moment, I knew that if I continue on the investment banking track, that not anything wrong with it. I'm not judging those people, but I knew that I would disappoint that 80 to 90 year old version of me. And that changed my life forever. I went back to university. I rebuilt my major. So I didn't end up even going down that track. I traded and did commodities currencies on the side in my spare time. But early part of my career was spent as a, as a teacher in New York City out of that shift, right? Because wow. I was like, I've got to, I got, I want to make my 80s, 80. I guess this is like the people, this is like one of the people pleaser sides of me, right? You uh-huh. know, I got to, I got to make that 80 year old version of me proud. <laughs> it doesn't stop with people pleasing your 80 year old self. Yes. Yes. So, and it must be great to have that experience as being a teacher, like under your belt, like in your being. I mean, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like I come from a lineage of teachers, you know, my parents were both teachers. They had a fancy term professor, right. Which is, they are awesome people and they've done awesome things. And, you know, my aunt Linda was a teacher. My grandma was a teacher. My cousins are teachers. I think, you know, it's sort of just been one of those things is a generational hand-me-down. And you're back to being a teacher, right? And here I am. Yeah. yeah. In in its essence, a mentor, coach, you know, trainer, teacher. Teacher. (laughs) Teacher. Teacher. Yeah. Yeah. I identify with that, really. And my mom was a second grade teacher before I came into the world. And, you know, that's how where the GFR commandments came to be is that specifically the confession questions was like, I can't just give commandments. Like that's not helping people to, you know, learn about themselves. Like there needs to at least be a question. Right. And then, you know, I don't know why the Jewish gal made something commandments with confession questions. But she did. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, <laughs> two things. I'm I- telling you, you nailed it with those 12 commandments. Cause when I was reading through them, I'm like, Whoa, this is a tough choice. Yeah. This so you not- chose number four, trust I- that your struggle serves your mission. I was like, I don't because I mean, I could have picked about four of them. There was an, I mean, anybody out there, if you haven't gone and downloaded your 12 commandments, the GFR 12 commandments, go do it because it'll get you thinking about <laughs> which of these is actually my driver here. Yes, yes. It becomes kind of a diagnostic tool. It's not a 12 step program, y'all. You don't have to go one to 12. <laughs> Just, you know, pick one. That's enough. <laughs> 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 okay, we're having too much fun. All right. So, Talk to me. I want to I want to take people to the point where you really lost everything, kind of hit broke bottom, if you will. And I would like to kind of know what was going on sort of leading up to that and then, you know, sort of take us through it. Yeah. The second most painful moment of my life. You know, up until then, I had been quote unquote, a rising star in the social impact business space. I built three companies, one in clean energy, one in global media for women to reshape body image of mass media, and one in sustainable clothing. I'd given a TEDx talk on feeding half a million meals to people in need. Then the wheels fell off. The wheels absolutely fell off. And challenges, you know, I now co-parent my son. That has worked out beautifully, but very, very complicated. And then uh, my business life fell apart in 2016. And uh, that was one of those moments where at the time it felt like sheer terror every single day, Uh, living in a one-room studio, no car, could barely put food on the table. I'd look at my son sleeping in our one bed. We only had one bed that we shared and I would see him asleep and I'd be like, how you got to provide, provide for this kid. And it was just a moment of my life that turned out to be the best moment that I I've ever experienced. And he was five at the time. Is that yeah, I did four, that math uh, right? Four, four, and four and or five. What signs did you ignore leading up to that? I would say the most painful one when I look back and I, I talk about this a lot is the universe was asking me to ask for help. 
the universe was asking me to ask for help. And it was sending these various people in my path who were essentially saying, ask for help, right? Listen, listen better. I made a fatal mistake. I was too locked up in a combination of emotions. There was ego, right? Ego told me this lie. Alok, entrepreneurs are problem solvers who solve things on their own. That was the lie of the ego. It's a very understandable lie, by the way, right? Entrepreneurs are problem solvers. But my brain had done a little bit of a mistranslation, <laughs> which is who figure it out on their own. Mm. And then there was the deadly combination of embarrassment. Mm, yeah. So the ego was saying this lie. And then internally, there was the embarrassment that I wasn't figuring it out on my own. And something must be wrong with me. Don't you see all these other entrepreneurs? They're figuring it out somehow on their own. See, my brain kept translating. Well, if they're successful, they must have figured it out on their own. So I should be able to. So I should be able to. I look back and the universe was begging me to change. I can now chart backwards, Lisa. And remember, so-and-so had this conversation, opened the door. But because I had this other piece that was just beyond crippling, which was this. I thought that if people found out that I couldn't solve it on my own, that they would think I was a fraud. Meanwhile, you were a fraud because I was. That, that's right. <laughs> right. That's like, the irony. <laughs> isn't that the irony? Yeah. Right. And so, what did I do at the time? I duct taped it all together and overcompensated with hard work. Right. I was just like duct tape it together, glue it, spit glue, you know, duct tape it all together and work longer hours. And if I just work harder and longer, It'll like look like I'm doing what entrepreneurs do, which is work harder and longer. And if I do that enough, it'll all work out. Oh, oh, I look back and I'm like, God, if you just listened, these people were sent by God onto your path and you, you ignored them and thought that you just work harder. It'll all work out. It was so painful. So painful. Here's a question from my intuition, which is, what message was your son giving you at the time that you weren't listening to? Yeah, I mean, time, time, dad, you're not here. Get off your phone, dad, right? You know, dad, I'm here, right? Dad was doing what dad had to do to put food on the table. That's what dad was telling himself. That was what dad was telling himself. And in the early go, it was literally like, <laughs> we need to not go to the homeless shelter. Yeah. And, you know? and did that drive? Because if that was the early days, right, that must have driven you. It's like you pick up speed because you're wanting to, to win that race. And then the speed is, it's like hard to slow down and sort of like appreciate the fruits of your labor at some point and listen to the, hey, we're trying to give you help thing because you were in survival mode. You know, yeah, it's hard that, to shift out of that. Yeah, that, that I would say the evolution was like lose everything enough that basically I had to get on my knees and ask God, like, what am I missing here? I mean, that was literally the, the you know, they jokingly call it come to Jesus moment, right? Yeah. I'm not talking about some religious conversion here, but. I did have to finally actually, and here's a word that I'd like to share with your audience is surrender. I love that word. Surrender. Like I finally, Lisa, I just had to surrender. Like, because I looked up, I'd be like, what, what in God's name am I missing right now? Because I have the work ethic, the commitment. The heart of the heart, service. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like I've put everything on the line. It's not like I'm holding back. 
like all in for this impact driven business stuff. And I'm trying to be a good dad. And I'm a loyal partner at the time, even though things got complicated, but not, you know, sitting here cheating, sleeping around. I'm like, what? I've got everything on the line here for an impact driven career to try to make the world a better place. Like, what am I missing? And then finally, like what was left when all the rest is stripped away? It was ask for help. Alok, you don't ask for help. You think you do, but you don't. So how much do you have to lose? Oh, how much do you have to lose? You know, now I never lost my son. Hmm. Never lost my son. Never lost custody or anything. We, we didn't even have custody battles. She and I, whatever our difference is, his mom and I, we, we always work things out. So I never lost my son. But God was spirit, universe was eventually like, what do, what do we have to remove so you'll just surrender? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and take the, your hand yeah. and stick it up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. And I was doing the math on when you gave up drinking. Yeah. Which was. 2014. Yeah. Yeah. That was the beginning of the asking for help began. Yeah. Yeah. That was an unbelievably transformative moment. It had been brewing for a long time. Because here's the crazy part, Lisa, is that no one around me was like saying you have a problem. (laughs) Everybody. Because you were just good at it. (laughs) Yeah. Professional. (laughs) And I was also like, that's because all of y'all are alcoholics. I mean. Right. You know. Right. I mean, of course, you're going to say to me, I'm wrong, right? So, I mean, you know, it was, that was the beginning. And I remember a guy walking into the sustainable clothing store that I ran at the time. And he was asking about a, a place to take his wife on a date. And I shared it with him. But then as he's walking out the door and I'm serving customers, I remember that they don't serve alcohol there. And so I shout across the, the room, across the store. I'm like, by the way, they don't serve any alcohol in case because I was still a drinker at the time. And he, as he's walking, he's like, that's okay. I've got 12 years. And at first I thought that's such a strange response. You're like 12 years of what? <laughs> and then instantly spirit told me. Wow. I just and the chills. following week I walked into his business. He's like, hello, good to see you. You know, he, just normal. And I look at him and I ask one question. I just say one sentence. I'm like, the other day when you were walking out of my store, you said you have 12 years. And instantly, this whole vibrato melted away. And he got quiet. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, do you need to talk to me? And I had a big public persona. I had a big, yeah. And he just pointed at a table inside his restaurant back in the corner. He's like, I said, yeah, I do. Ah. And I sat there and I raised my hand on the thing that had been plaguing me for so long. Amazing. Just the simple act. I didn't end up doing tw- uh, AA or anything like that with him. And he he suggested it and this and that. But that was it. That That's was the it. first step. Doesn't matter whether it. you're in the program or not. That was the first that, step. <laughs> that was the beginning of the raise of the hand. And it would take me a couple more years to really do it in the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. and now I'm just like... Can I get some help? Thank you so much. <laughs> help! help! I literally, I walk in, I don't care what it is, anything from a spiritual development to a sales training. I walk in, just my ears are like Dumbo. I'm just <laughs> like, what do you got? It just says so much about you as a human, just the, you know, I'm going to use the word humility to be, always be the student, you know, <laughs> even when you are a teacher is... That's not an easy attribute to cultivate. So I really acknowledge, you know, that as a significant thing. I'm like, well, I'm a, listen, I'm a simpleton. Like my (laughs) life changed when I started asking for more help. There's no going back. That's why when I think people are crazy. Ah, well, that's, that's not very nice. Once I tasted what it's like to be someone who is supported, you know, who doesn't have to invent the wheel, Right. I'm like, why would I go back to stumbling my way in the dark trying to figure it out on my own? Why, why would I do that? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I agree. And that, that was one of my big lessons too in life. And I, I, I'll never forget, I had a boss that this was, gosh, I was married less than a year. 
and it was my first advertising agency job. And I made a mistake about something. And she said, it's not okay to make mistakes. And it was like the first time that I really was like, well, that's really stupid. You know, like, like I needed that ridiculous comment to kind of like, like short circuit, whatever road I was going down, which was need to be perfect. No mistakes. Don't ask for help. You know, that, that whole, that whole thing. It's like, no, it is preferable (laughs) to learn from your mistakes. Oh my God. That's basically how I've built my whole brand. People are like, look, you're a marketing genius. I'm like, I just tell the truth. I don't know. It's not like a highly refined science. It's called the truth. Yes, yes, yes. Which the GFR commandment number three, don't worry about being normal, proper or polite. That's right. Yeah. The origin of that, what is, is marketing is like, just stop, stop, stop Stop. trying to not be and not offend and just say the freaking things. Just say the things. (laughs) Yeah. Say the fucking things if you need to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So where do we want to go next? Well, I'm intrigued by your recent plant medicine work because it, I just feel like there's so much powerful work that many of us are doing in what I'm calling the COVID crucible that we're living in now. And it's just inviting us. (laughs) <laughs> in some ways, kicking and screaming for speaking for myself, um, <laughs> you know, just really inviting us to take another cut is kind of what I keep calling it. So I'm just curious if there's anything additional you want to share from your recent work that you feel is really kind of setting you up for the next chapter. Yeah, for me, I stumbled into personal growth literally at a Barnes and Noble, like gazillion. Whenever Eckhart Tolle wrote the book, A New Earth. No, I was going to say, don't even say A New Earth. That book was like life changing for me. That's right. And honestly, I remember, but I was like, how did I even like come across that? It's not like. And it is not an easy, I mean, it's not like, that's not a beginner's personal development book. (laughs) No, but I read that and I was like, oh my God, thank you. Like, I'm the guy that's needing to feed himself being right more often, you know? I remember reading that section. I'm like, oh, man. And the pain body work, like, that is so vivid. It's so vivid. And and my girlfriend would probably say, I still have work to do on that front, but at least it began a process. How does she know? (laughs) (laughs) She just lives with you. (laughs) That's right. You know, and so for me, that kind of journey of exploration, like, how do I how do I get better as a human, right? What do I get to unlearn? That was a little hand-me-down. And I would say that my curiosity around plant medicines went honestly from being a judgment, right? Like, oh, plant medicines, they're really just wanting to take drugs, right? To a curiosity that, you know, I think there's an important conversation, especially in the world of entrepreneurship that I swim in, it forces us to look in the mirror, right? And we may at times see things that we don't always really like about ourselves. And we have an epidemic, I think, of people being very hard on themselves. Yes. Um, the rise and grind, that kind of like, you know, fear-driven action. So for me, plant medicine has been part of my journey to be a better human, be a better father, be a better partner, and to seek out another avenue around challenges, right? Emotion, emotional health, emotional well-being, trauma, right? Like how can we begin to unlock, whether it's generational trauma, whether it's specific acute trauma in our lives, whether it's lineage-based traumas, um, past lives for some people. To me, it was doing that work, right? How How can we go a little deeper and, you know, as they say, I went to do ayahuasca and as they'll say, she's a grandmother energy <laughs> who's going to show you what you need to see, not what you wanted to see. Well, I applaud your openness to it. I haven't done it myself, but I'm super intrigued. I'm just, I'm just super intrigued by things that are going to have me see stuff I don't see about myself. Yeah. Know? It was beyond devastating and incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's not yeah. easy um I, i've sat for eight ceremonies and wow like what i remembered right because you go through a lot of rememberings 
both was devastating, but then it made sense. And I was like, oh, gosh, no wonder trust, intimacy. Oh, no wonder I've had difficulties with those things in my life. Oh, no wonder relationships have had challenges. Oh, and then you can be gentle with yourself. You can hold yourself. It also changed how I was going to lead my team now and things that we're doing. So many things emerge out of that. I, I want to say for the audience, like I'm not sitting here saying like everybody should go run and do ayahuasca. What I am saying is breath work, right? There yes. are other ways you can tap in to those consciousness, right? Like I love how you did conscious marketing, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, right? But consciousness, how do we tap into consciousness? I think breath work, meditation. There's, there are other modalities. I just know that, you know, the place that I went is a place called Rhythmia. It's for those that are remotely curious about ayahuasca. It's a really special place because it's a, the first five-star eco resort that's licensed by an actual national government. So it's safe. There's a full medical staff. And I, I wanted to, if I was going to do it, I didn't want to do it on someone's living room floor. Yeah. 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 I've heard of Rhythmia and I'm um, up. One of our other guests and a really good friend of mine, Lisa Sasevich, um, yeah. went there when it opened uh, yeah. within the first year of, of sure. it opened. Yeah, it's, it seems like a real special place. It's very, very cool. Yeah, it's work. Yeah, yeah, Woo-hoo. yeah. So for our our last segment, I would love to sort of bring it home in terms of like the current expression of your mission and really what you see for really the future from where, what you, you know, your vantage point now? Yeah. You know, my journey is, is a, is a pretty simple one. It's given everything that you and I have talked about, right. Growing in West Philadelphia, going to India, my whole life, exploring race, class, and gender. For me at this point now, you know, I've got this really simple set of ideas that my mission is to move money, more money through people who do good in the world to make more good happen. I mean, it's, it's so simple. Like, you know, I got it from going to Detroit in, in uh, the year 2000 after I graduated college. And I was like, wow, the money stopped flowing through this place. Yeah. You know, Lisa, I didn't have a fancier way of talking about it. Like I was just like, huh, the money stopped flowing through this place. And then the more sophisticated narratives, when I started working for nonprofits I started working in mission-driven businesses. I was like, wow, when the money flows through the place, they're able to do more good. Two nonprofits with the same mission, one with the executive director that can move more money through it is going to touch more lives, right? These are really simple ideas that I actually think are really sophisticated and profound. And so as far as what we do now, I am founder and CEO of Uplift Millions, global coaching consulting company that simply helps Entrepreneurs that want to grow six to eight figure companies do so that value the way that values people, planet, and profit. That's that's my view, right? It's what we call blue zone leadership. It's a desire to shift from red zone leadership, which is profit at all costs. You know, people of color are expendable, women are expendable, environment is expendable, right? That's the old way. I truly believe we were living in a time of awakening when more and more people are saying, "Huh, can I do?" business in a way that benefits the collective. And uh, so that's, that's what I've dedicated my journey to. Awesome. You're the real deal. And I'm sure you've heard that before, but I certify you as the real deal. <laughs> I could feel your heart um, and your authenticity. Coming from the woman who started conscious marketing before it was a thing. I take that as like the ultimate, <laughs> like, Bang. Hello. <laughs> I'll give you your seal. You can add it. Yeah, to I'm taking it. <laughs> I'm taking it. That's like the ultimate right there. That's the OG who gets it before it was even a thing to get. I would say uh, I did conscious marketing before the secret was out. Right. That's <laughs> the secret a great, was still a secret. <laughs> that's right. Look at that. You, you, that, that. That's quite a milestone moment, right? Right. Yes. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Alok, it has been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I want to ask you, do you have a final message for our audience? Yeah, I do. You know, if you're listening and you're feeling like you could do more, 
to make the world a better place. There's something inside of you. It's very easy to get caught in our sort of life just starts moving, right? But if something inside of you, you know, I truly, I write about this in my upcoming book, Maximum Impact Potential. Like, I truly believe there's Gandhi inside all of us. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't believe the heroes in the impact space are somehow genetically different than us. By the way, I used to believe that. Like, I literally was like, these people must be genetically different, you know? It's really a courageousness. It's a courageousness. And so if you're listening out there and there's something inside of you that just believes you were built to touch more lives, listen to that. Start little by little. I know that sounds so cliched, (laughs) but you're as capable as anybody else at making a beautiful impact, your unique impact, what I call your maximum impact. Just listen to it. You can change your MIP, your maximum impact potential right now. Just decide that you want to move it in a different direction and don't let anybody around you, because some of them might look at you kind of funny, right? They'll look at you kind of funny, but uh, just trust yourself. Trust that intuition. That's your soul talking. That's your soul revealing a path that you came here to do. Go, Go do it. You won't regret. You will not regret that decision. So that's my final thought. Beautifully said, and I will leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alok, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. Oh my gosh. I just loved that conversation. I love Alok. I mean, who? how can you not fall in love with this man? And you will appreciate him even more when you check out his gift to our listeners. Essentially, it's a free membership. It's called Uplift Millions, and the link is in the show notes. There's 146 trainings on leadership, sales, marketing, and an amazing network of people that he's put together. And it's kind of like, is this really free? Because I I said to him, like, is this your freebie? And he said, yep. And so you definitely want to check that out and be in his orbit. And he does a really cool training for our GFR squad members called, Are You an Impact Imposter? And he GFRs about his observations on what really says that someone is making an impact versus just talking about it. And we know there's a lot of people and companies that are wanting to get in on the social impact brigade, but some you feel are authentic and some aren't. So this may give you some illuminations on that. So this is just for our GFR squad members. If you're not a member yet, Please come hang out with us once a month where we highlight one of the GFR confession questions. And uh, we just have a really great conversation, a great way to connect with people that are just being real, you know, go to gfr.life forward slash squad to become a member of the squad and make sure you have your commandments for sure. Link in the show notes and subscribe to our show if you haven't yet. So you don't miss any of these amazing entrepreneurs that really show you that your struggle has a purpose. Over and out for now.